You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Mark Grabansky, the founder and CEO of Frontend Masters, an online education company where I've been an instructor for both Elm and Rust courses over the years. We talk about getting back to basics with web development, not just from an educational perspective, but how using techniques that today might be considered old-fashioned can actually be better than modern, quote, best practices. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, back to basics in production. All right, Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, well, thanks for having me here. Richard. <laughs> so you're the uh, the founder of Frontend Masters, from whom I start off by thanking you because I get a lot of paychecks from you for <laughs> for the Elm and Rust content I made for you. Uh, and I think Frontend Masters is an awesome place to like work for. So thank you for running an awesome organization. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really, really awesome, especially lately. It's like, yeah, just the love from the community, like the people that are using the product to to you know upgrade their jobs and and all that kind of stuff it's it's really really cool but uh you know we have kind of this specific slant that i think you and i resonate with which is language fundamentals and yeah. really focusing on the fundamentals of of kind of like how to think about programming and programming fundamentals instead of just jumping to you know higher level frameworks and that kind of thing yeah i think well so speaking of fundamentals so, something i wanted to ask you about because i remember uh, this is like maybe four or five years ago now, you were like redoing the, the Frontend Masters website and like you were doing it. You, I, I don't think you like contracted somebody else to do this, but like there was a big focus on like, you know, this is Frontend Masters. Everything's got to load super fast. And like, you know, you go to that website, it can't be, it's not acceptable to, <laughs> to be called frontendmasters.com and to have it like like a low, you know, slow, slow loading experience. Absolutely. And yeah, that's something I care a lot about too. But I, I also know that like a lot of times when I talk to people about web front-end performance, they're like, okay, here's this off-the-shelf thing that's going to do all this JavaScript and like all this like prefetching and like, you know, when you hover over a link, it's going to like load this in the background automatically. And like, that's the answer is to like add a lot more frameworks and like use yeah, the right just, framework. Just shove it in, just take it all and just, you know, shove it in the background and then like load it. So it looks f- fast, but really like you loaded eight right. megabits of stuff <laughs> in the background and just kind of shoved it back there. And, and uh, wow, it's so fast. Yeah. yeah but I, I don't think that's what you did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so what did you do? Yeah. So yeah, along with language fundamentals, like, you know, I guess that comes from my personal slant of like performance. I want things to load fast. Like who doesn't want things to load faster, right? Yeah. Like in general, like, and with that, you know, I, I think our, our CTO, well, I should say our CTO is sort of like he has the exact same engineering mindset when it comes to on the back end as I do on the front end. And so, yeah, we build everything in house and uh, everything is vanilla JavaScript on the front end. Um, so everything on frontendmasters.com is vanilla JavaScript. And then on the back end is is vanilla Go. So built with the exact same philosophy. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't know, like, a whole lot of engineers, you know, when I talk to them these days that ever look at a 2012 code base and pull it up and be like, wow, that's really, really great stuff. And (laughs) I feel like that, like these days it's like, I can pull up some of my old code and it's like, 
there's so many really cool concepts here that the industry is still wrapping their head around. It's like I had time travel debugging and like being able to like walk back and forth through state and all this stuff. And I had all this stuff. I just, I just came to that decision through just trying to get better at engineering in general, learning, you know, as many concepts as I can and applying them. And so, uh, yeah, it's just the general concept. And to answer your original question of how do we make it fast? Well, it's all statically built, right? So the the goal is just have HTML files, and that's it. Just serve the HTML files, and uh, you know, add JavaScript where you need it. Which you know, the site should work really, really fast. So as as minimal amount of code and modules as you can, and uh, and so um, yeah, anywhere you can just write the code that does the job instead of pulling in external libraries. I think that's just my general philosophy because it's like good engineering doesn't need a lot of external stuff and and when you pull up open that project later it should you know be clear where the things are and and also just not have a lot of you don't have to like npm update for like the next two days before you can like (laughs) write the code you know it should be about the product and not the not the dependency management problem that we current you know a lot of engineering has today so yeah, it's all statically built, and and then for the dynamic stuff, Go just kind of hydrates. It says, okay, the cookie exists, and then it uh, just um, hydrates the template, you know, the Go template with the authenticated data, the username, and so and yeah, 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 exactly. So we we kind of have a hybrid in that, like all the static pages are built for the public people who are not logged in, and if they have a cookie, then we just yeah, we just. <laughs> Uh, send yeah. that data down and and so that that now that page can be dynamic yeah i i think it's really interesting this sort of like there's been this shift towards like libraries by default for everything over the past like i don't know 10 15 years maybe because i remember like I, I have a lot of nostalgia for the jquery era of like the web when that was like the biggest thing and like Yes, there were some problems with like, okay, mutating the DOM directly all the time. If you do that enough and your thing gets big enough, it's like a big mess. But if it's not that big, it's not a big mess. It's just fine. Like, it's just totally like you can do a couple of small mutations. It's really not the end of the world. It just, you know, it, it can become a problem if that's like, you know, the DOM becomes like your source of truth and you're making some really, really big, you know, thousands and thousands of lines, like complicated web app. Yeah, absolutely. And we we had that debate internally, right? Like oh, yeah? we have we have engineers back in the day, it was just mostly me and Brent, uh, you know, our CTO. And now we have a, a bit larger team. And, you know, the team is like, why don't we use tools that we use everywhere else? You know, like especially coming into the team, like, why are we doing things this way? So it kind of like it was an interesting moment where it's like, okay, do I actually know what I'm talking about these days? Like, you know, <laughs> it, you know, I made these decisions a few years ago, so let's let's take a look, let's dig in. So, I made a project called To Do MVC with Vanilla JavaScript in 2022. So you can just basically type in Vanilla JavaScript 2022 or whatever, and you can get this project. And it it was surprisingly like kicked off a lot of discussion on you know all the usual suspects on Twitter. Oh, and I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Hacker news and all that stuff in there. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, there is like a lot of positivity towards this approach. The initial code only took me about an hour. It was 170 lines, you know, no dependencies. It was just like, 
and it, it did everything that I needed to do. I, granted, to do MVC is not that complicated, right? But of it was course, like, yeah. you know, it's just kind of a proof of concept because the the like original vanilla JavaScript version was like 900 plus lines, and this was just like here it is. Here's all the modern you know features with you know arrow functions and whatever. Like I was able to like extend event target and make a you know a class be able to emit events and stuff like that and so that was like you know there's some fun new tools that we have that are just kind of like built in the browser and yeah and like template literals and and all these kinds of you know things that that make we can make essentially it feel like a modern framework with just new modern things that are built into the language and so you know using those things i was able to you know, yeah, not not leave the state in the DOM and, you know, kind of <laughs> render things top down and all that kind of stuff. And so I've got a, a blog post that kind of walks through all the architecture decisions and that kind of thing. And so then I'm kind of using that to like also educate like our internal staff when it comes to the front end engineers on our team of like, here are here are what frameworks provide you and here are why I think that this approach is is better. And yeah, it's I think it's proven to to stand the test of time. And I think it will continue to stand the test of time. And I, I'm very interested in like teaching people how to kind of think about just using JavaScript to build large, you know, applications, because the reality is there really isn't much material. That's why you reach for, you know, I think a lot of these frameworks, because there's, there's plenty of examples where you can kind of just pull how they built this or that. Whereas in vanilla JavaScript, it's like, yeah, like you talked about back in the day, it was like jQuery. And so everything was jQuery. And there still isn't like a modern vanilla JavaScript guide to like building, you know, ambitious web applications. And so that that's something I'm very interested, but obviously <laughs> I run a company <laughs> and and we have a you know a lot of engineers. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll I'll take a, a short <laughs> like two weeks sabbatical and just kind of like knock it out or something. I don't know. But <laughs> these days it's just, I have debates with, with my team about architecture and, and that kind of thing. It's Well, I like what you said about like frameworks provide certain benefits, but they also come with certain costs and a, a weird cultural dynamic that seems to have emerged over the last, I don't know, like, like I said, maybe 10, 15 years, I'm kind of ballparking there is that the costs have just been started to like, become taken for granted it's like if you're doing and like you know i'm setting aside the elm world like if you're in, in javascript land and you're like i need to start a new web project the norm is you're gonna have a big old npm like package config with like a, i mean maybe maybe your package.json is like itself pretty small but there's a bunch of transitive dependencies like megabytes of stuff and all of that's third party not like you know baked into the browser or anything and all of that stuff has varying degrees of working well with one another. And like, this is just like the baseline for like hello world with like modern tech stuff, regardless of the size of the project. And also like, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open to the idea that like, maybe, you know, to your point, like maybe these things are like, they have certain benefits, but also maybe the costs outweigh those benefits. I absolutely think the cost outweighs the benefits. <laughs> and in 99.9999% of cases, I think you should just write the code for the job at hand and just have no dependencies. And just, you know, if you need, that's the thing. If you, a code base is only as good as the people who are working together on it, making and how they make decisions together. 
ultimately that is it right so how fast it it ends up being you know how great the architecture is etc like it's all a function of how that team works together and i think to your point about costs it's like the more tools you adopt the more things that i think get in the way of you actually having the real discussions you have to make because a lot of engineers instead of having that really hard discussion they decide to reach for another tool oh this will solve it oh this will solve it oh this will solve it and so what ends up happening is at the end of the day somebody pulls the escape hatch and just hacks it together with (laughs) either you know something else and it's just like there's you see it in every framework code base there's like us you know like even when framework authors, you know, we work with framework authors. So it's like me as a CEO of front end masters, disparaging frameworks is sort of like a a knock to some of them, I think in some ways, but I recognize that, you know, there are a lot of jobs out there and we want the best education for learning these frameworks and being productive in them because our goal is to make people successful. And so I, I don't let my own slants, you know, get in the way of, of having the best education on these frameworks and stuff. I, I understand their place in a lot of these organizations. And the only way to be productive in these organizations is, you know, to learn the tools stay sure, you know, uh, every, the joke is in, in JavaScript, it's like, there's a new framework every five minutes. It was like, you know, it was people were really excited about Vue and then people were really excited about Svelte. And now people are really excited about Solid and on and on and on the cycle goes. You know, I get that these tools are adopted, but what I would like people to consider is just writing the code for the job at hand, you know, with just the language or try it. You know, if it, if it doesn't work, you can always be like, okay, now I have a better understanding of the problem domain and now I can introduce a tool that I feel is exciting, you know, or that, you know, solves the problems that I have for this particular, you know, problem. But like the fact that we have to reach for a framework immediately is just absolutely asinine from my perspective. Because, <laughs> you know, you don't even know the problem at hand a lot of times and you're already starting with a framework because it's exciting. Like I, I get that a lot of people, you know, that works out for them, great. But I, I just think, you know, at least for me personally, I think that's a major misstep when you could just write the code that does the job and be excited about it and evolve it. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't completely fulfill every single use case that you have. Okay, well, you can change the architecture using solid architectural you know, principles because you, you, are, you are an engineer and you can think through things and you can talk to your team. Well, maybe we should, maybe we should uh, you know, break these out into separate modules that we can reuse over here and here or whatever, right? But like, or just make, you know, these kind of, but you're the ones making the trade-off. You're not outsourcing the trade-offs to the framework, which then all of a sudden, you know, you run into an issue where you're like, the framework doesn't handle this one particular situation. So you go and you go into the Discord and you go in or whatever Slack and you start going, I have this specific problem and, you know, the framework is, you know, barfing at me. And <laughs> like, you know, I just don't know what's going on. And, and then they're like, here's this undocumented API with this specific escape hatch, you know, to like solve this or get around it. And every single framework has this problem. I have definitely run into that like over and over in my career of like using something that's like 
yeah, there are benefits for sure. But there's always a moment where I hit something and I'm like, this would be super easy if I had done this all myself. And now it's super hard. I'm like, I'm fighting against the framework because like, it just doesn't happen to support or, or the abstraction that they've chosen is like somewhat leaky and doesn't quite work for this one scenario. And so now I need to start, okay, how do I, how do I try to salvage this? It's, it's always in like damage control mode instead of being like, Oh, this is a very helpful tool. It's like, no, no, the tool is actually the problem now. I've always run into that like at, at some level with every like big framework I've ever used. Yeah, and this is going to date me, but <laughs> it's going to definitely date me. But like, you know, back in the day when I was writing, I would write like, you know, basic PHP and then I was starting to use uh, Cake PHP and then I, you know, I built some apps on Cake PHP on .net on Rails and then some stuff on the on the JVM which had a million different <laughs> jars that all Oh like, yeah. You know, so I built stuff on all these frameworks and, you know, and then there was ORMs and that was a big movement. And it's just like, and then WordPress too, where it's just like, all of a sudden it's just generating a thousand SQL queries to just load this one page. And, you know, just every environment I can just go through (laughs) on and on and on every environment. It's just like, at the end of the day, all you really needed to do in those situations was write a couple lines of SQL And, you know, I'm not a SQL master, so, you know, I'm probably a bit of a a hypocrite there, but that's why I rely on folks (laughs) like uh, Brent, our CTO, to, like, write the optimal SQL queries. But I recognize that, you know, you can write the right query to get the right data and then just render the page versus, you know, having these ORMs spit out, you know, now I need this data and this data and this data and or you know, and then all of a sudden, let's put GraphQL on top of that. And now GraphQL spirals out of control because you can endlessly like nest these things and, and get, you know, it's just, um, yeah, <laughs> we adopting tools, more and more and more tools to like patch the problem when the problem is just ultimately at the end of the day, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And what is the minimal amount of code that needs to be written to, to solve that? then let's talk about the trade-offs as we're building it, you know, as a team. And, and so, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just, it comes down to communication. What is the problem and what, what do you need to actually solve it? Yeah. I, I love that. That's a, that's a great like philosophy. Like the, what's the minimal amount of code I can write to solve this problem. And I mean, I think some might take that to be like, Oh, so that, so that means I need to grab a huge dependency and then that will let me minimize my number of lines of code. But like, I, w- I would take that a step further and say like, what's the minimal amount of code I can write without bringing in a dependency if I can avoid it. And if there is a dependency that'll like save me some code, why don't I try like writing it first and like get partway through it and see if it's like, Oh, this is going to be a big project unless I bring in the dependency, you know, like my threshold for adding dependencies has definitely gone up over time. Like the more time I've spent with programming. Yeah. I'm glad that's the case. And I think that <laughs> any good or senior engineer or, or team lead, you know, I think eventually gets to that point where it's like, they start squinting when the new engineer says, <laughs> you know, solid is the next thing or, or whatever the next framework <laughs> is like, and, and a lot of times, you know, we were, we were like that when we were young too, so, or, you know, young in terms of engineering, it's like, right. You grab the next crazy, whatever, you know, in the next, you know, wild tool that, you know, is dropped and, and 
promises to solve all our problems, but you know, it's just, it's just another day and another hype cycle. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, it's fun to jump on the hype cycles and, and see what a new solution has to offer. But a lot of times it's just the same patterns rinsed and repeated throughout the decades. And it just seems like those cycles are now going faster and faster. It's, it's like, it used to be, you know, a lot longer before, you know, big cycles, hype cycles happened, right? And the hype was bigger. And then now it's just like, as the communities and social media and stuff gets fractured into these smaller communities, now the hype cycles are, it seems like faster together. And and now it's like, yeah, there's a new, new framework, new tool, new library, new language, new whatever. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's fun to play with new things for sure. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna disparage trying new things. Like definitely, yeah, yeah, do that, for sure. Explore, but at the end of the day, like I think when it comes to building a production system that's going to stand the test of time and deliver real business value, it's time to think about, you know, what is the maintainable path and what is the performant path and what is, you know, what is the you know, what is the, the, the thing that's going to get us all writing better code and communicating and writing better documentation and these kinds of things like these are, these are the things that are going to, you know, ultimately make us all move faster together and like have less battles. Like we shouldn't be battling over frameworks. We should be battling over like, what is the business business problem and what is the architecture that we should build in order to solve that? Yeah. Speaking of documentation, so I, I had a related experience. Um, I was I was building the like docs site for Rock, and like this is something that's it needs to be kind of flexible because it's not just like standard library docs, but also there's like a a command you can run to generate docs for your own you know code that you're writing, and you know, like it generates it from the the source code and everything. But I was just making this mockup of like, okay, what do I want the HTML, CSS, JavaScript to look like? And basically, it's it's all static content, except there's a little search bar on the side. And you can type that in to sort of like filter all the module names based on like whatever string you typed in. So you can, you know, narrow it down more quickly and not have to like hunt through the whole list. Really basic thing. And I was like, okay, kind of like what you said, what's the simplest thing that will work? And I was like, no dependencies, no, like, obviously, like, someone's be like, oh, surely you're going to bust out Elm for this. But I was like, well, let me just, I don't think this is going to need that. Like, this is just going to be a really, really basic thing. Let me just do it the obvious way. And so I, in part, was thinking about this because a couple of years ago, I read about this idea of, like, what if you just disable JavaScript and try using the web and, like, everything will either load much faster or not work at all. And sure enough, that was kind of the experience is like a lot of a lot of pages just loaded instantly. And then a lot of other pages didn't work at all, because they just needed JavaScript to function on a basic level. Then I was like, why don't I try and make this work as much as possible without JavaScript? And I'll just have this little tiny bit of opt in JavaScript for the for the search bar, and it'll just add a little bit of functionality to the page. It ended up being 50 lines of JavaScript to add that whole search bar. And that was it. It works. It's held up. It's, it does its job. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing else to it. Those 50 lines are still this, like two years. Like they're still, they're still doing their job. And like, I don't think it needs anything else. And I'm sure you feel good about that to this day, right? Yeah. And something else was funny. Like it's been a while since I've like written, like, I mean, other than this, <laughs> like I, it's, it's been a while since like my job was writing JavaScript, like years since, cause I've just been doing all Elm for front end stuff. But I, remember like reading about i remember javascript before bundlers and after bundlers and like 
there became this whole big thing with bundlers where like, first of all, it was necessary at the time because in order to get modules, you kind of needed that. Right. And like now the browser can do that, which is really cool. But back in the day, it wasn't, it wasn't really possible. But one of the things that I was reminded of was like, if you're just writing a .js file, I also didn't bother with TypeScript or anything. It's like, again, it's 50 lines. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't need any kind of a build step for that. Like I can just write the code and like keep it all in my head. It's not, it's not even takes up more than one screen, like in my editor, it's just all right there. So with that small scope, there's just, there's no problem that really needs solving by like additional, you know, but I would argue that if you take that mindset and you apply it to search and then you apply it to you know, each piece of functionality in your site, and then you, you just get this super powerful set of modules that you can apply everywhere because here, here's my example. So, you know, this frontendmasters.com you know, has been built with all these small modules with this mindset. And I sat down and I had to write the, our customer dashboard, which is, well, like our, once you log into the site, like it's kind of an app-like experience where you can like drag and drop things. And, uh, but, but the, the thing is, it's like all of the functionality from the website, like piled into this dashboard. So you have, you know, bookmarks and you have pagination and you have like selecting your learning path that you're going through and yada, yada, yada. It's like a bunch of different pieces of functionality built into, you know, a dashboard. That's what like an app or like a web app or whatever that people think of. They think of these rich web apps that have all this functionality. And it was like, I sat down and I did the entire dashboard. I'm not kidding you. It was like, I mean, it was like two hours or something or less. And it was like, you know, I, I would have to like go pull up the code to find the exact amount of lines of code. But it was just like, I wrote like, I don't know, I think it was like 60 lines of like glue code, you know, gluing these, you know, basically like import the module, apply it to this, import the module, apply it to this, import the module, apply it to this. It was like all of the functionality in the site just worked, you know, on this dashboard in just a couple of lines of code. And, and, you know, I pulled in, I did pull in one dependency for the, particular like how you kind of drag and drop and like resort reorder it's kind of like a pinterest kind of style and i just yeah i I put together a prototype using that and i was like oh maybe i could write that myself but i was like "Ah, that that piece would take a bit longer and like the business needs me on other things right now and it it works well and it and i used like you know one of those micro libraries and so it's like it still was very fast, but the, the point is like, I did exactly what you said, like build the search, build the bookmarks, build the whatever with, with, you know, each one of these modules are tiny, tiny modules. And, you know, the way that we handle data fetching and all these kinds of things, it's like, they're all little modules. And then I just like wrote a, a you know, a dashboard module that imported those modules and then initialized them and, and sent them on their way. And they all they all worked and and they're all fast and super snappy. And then, you know, the data, the data layer module, like, you know, handles all the data fetching. And so all the other modules use it. And it's just like, it's beautiful. And I love, it just makes, you know, that's why I asked you, like, did it feel good, you know, to write those 50 lines? Yeah. <laughs> and, and looking back at that later. And I just, I want engineers to have that feeling of like, wow, I feel good about this. It's like not loading people's browsers up with a bunch of garbage. It's just like, 
it feels good from an engineering perspective because you wrote the code, you know how it works, you can modify any of the modules or architecture if you ever want to. And, uh, you know, there's this one bit of code that that's a dependency that if I wanted to, I could just sit down and write in a couple hours, you know, and rip it out, which I've done, you know, over, over the years. It's like, uh, there was one thing that like made our, our, uh, you know, these like, it kind of like revved up or it kind of works like, a it's an animation that kind of works like a, the dashboard of a, of sports car where it like revs up. <laughs> you know, the the learning path or whatever cool yeah and you know i originally kind of built that i like pulled in a library for it just to to see like how i want it to look and feel and then you know i just replaced all of that with i think it ended up being 500 lines of code and it took me like an afternoon but i just used you know pure svg and html and then i the javascript took a bit of code because there was some you know some easing and it had to like count up from zero to 100 and back to it zero and do it in a performant way and all that kind of stuff and so there's request animation frame and but the fact is like i know all the browser apis i know how svg works i know how request animation frame works i know all this stuff works you know and i was able to like assemble this pretty complicated looking like you know widget or whatever in in just such a few lines of code and i feel good about it to this day and it it just it just works and it will always yeah. work in the future. It's like, sorry to keep going on another rant, but <laughs> I built this very large application for a furniture company, which, which is, uh, you can assemble these custom sectionals. I believe I can say it publicly, but room and board, you can kind of like pull these. And these are like, these are the models that they, they send to SAP and they like manufacture these parts. And like, I was able to take their, source files and like export them to svgs and then i built the entire ui on svgs and so they've been using this thing forever because they can like develop a new collection of 4000 products and just export them to svgs and like my system is flexible you just mark up you know the rules of how these things connect and they just you know they like it just works and so like I built it all on SVG on, you know, and, and at the time Android didn't support SVG well, the Android browser, but because I used browser standards and I was like, well, the re- product requirements was it only needed to work on iOS devices because they were using uh-huh. these iOS devices in the actual stores. And so it just needed to work for iOS. But now like over time, browser support has actually gotten better. And so instead of degrading my app degrading over the years, my app just keeps getting faster and faster (laughs) and more browser support. And you know what I mean? It upgrades over time. It doesn't degrade. Like there's no NPM modules that that team has to, you know, maybe someday there'll be a, some engineer over there like, Oh my gosh, he's talking about that code or whatever. But you know, (laughs) if any engineer over there pulls up, open that code, like I'm proud of that code. And, you know, I'm proud of that code to this day. And it just keeps working on more browsers and getting faster. And now it works on Android. Now it works on across all browsers. Was that generating the SVG server side or client side in the browser? So the export process was using, I can't remember if I was, what I was using to export from, I think there were like in 
those SAP like InDesign documents or I don't know how they, they, they have factory parts, right? And yeah. the process is if there was a, a tool I used or if it was, I, Node didn't exist back then. It could have been just an Adobe product that just converts it from the specs, the blueprints to the SVGs. And yeah. then, you know, my tool just imported the, you know, just use the SVG client side. I see. So, so somebody's just like, they just like press some buttons in a tool they already have. It's not even like about there's a server. It's like, it's like, no, you just use the software you already have and like press some buttons and then send this, put this file in this place and then it'll take it. Yeah. And then you basically mark up, I think like, you know, on the, in the database, they have like this product has these connect rules that I built. And then, you know, the interface just builds itself. Right. So we're, you know, there's, ah, cool. there's like a sidebar with all of these different SVGs, which are parts that are like straight from the, fa- you know, factory onto the, the website. And you can drag and drop these onto the stage and kind of build your sectional, your custom sectional and all the, you know, so yeah, obviously pricing and all that, those kinds of things like were done by the back end team, but it was a super fun project to, to build. And, and, uh, like I said, uh, there were so many cool things back in the day where it was like, you know, that was the example I was mentioning with time travel debugging. It's like their QA team would tell me that there was a bug and like connecting these pieces and then they would do something weird or whatever in a certain way. And I could just have them export all of the steps that it took to hit that bug. And then I could import it into my test suite, all of those dates, and I could just play through, do, 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 do. Okay, there's the bug. Okay, and then I just write the code and, and that entire glob of state is just in my test suite. And so now everything that QA, every bug that QA hit, I would just do app.export, grab that blo- in all those blobs of state, throw it into my test suite, and then just keep, you know, keep fixing bugs and, and moving on until there was nothing, you know, until they couldn't produce a bug. Yeah. And then now it just works for, you know, thousands of parts and, you know, it just works. It's like all of the things that QA ever found, I was able to just ingest them into my test suite. And then um, now I had like a full library of, of tons and tons of real world use cases where QA is trying to do certain things because they had a great team over there of, of QA that would like, you know, find these bugs. And so, yeah, just like building things, a state and then transitions between globs of state. I think you, you were talking about it in your episode with Anjana back heel about you know how elm works or whatever you know that that you have globs of state and you transition between them and that's that's how i built that thing and you know i built it you know honestly i used some of that money to bootstrap front of masters <laughs> so i was back in like 2010 2012 i was you know doing this stuff i think it's really interesting how like how much leverage you can get out of like different tools and they don't have to be off the shelf tools either. Like that's the system for like time travel that you built just based on the fact that the way that you architected the application was like as a series of state transformations. So you could export it as a data format and then have like QA do that. Sometimes it's like kind of difficult to tease apart. I think like what are the benefits you get from an individual thing? Like people will look at like Elm or like react or like there's a new bundler out there called Vit, but it's it's spelled like Vite, but it's apparently French. So Viet. it's like Vit. Vit. It's Vit. Yeah, Vit. Wow. Okay, I have to go on a slight tangent here. So like that is astonishing to me because <laughs> I remember hearing about this thing and I was like, oh, it's Vite. Cool. What's what's this Vite thing? 
And the first thing that it says under its description is like pronounced and there's a pronunciation guide. And I was like, we're off to a bad start if I haven't even read the first sentence of your self-description and there's already a counterintuitive UX thing going on. <laughs> like that is not like pick a different name. Like <laughs> if you need to start by explaining how to pronounce the name in, in English and like you're an English product, just if you're French, okay, fine. Like I got it, but it's not a French product. Anyway, I don't see that on their site now. So to be fair to them, like it seems like they are. Uh, okay, this was at the time. Or maybe, be, yeah. let's see. But uh, Evan, you, you know, who created Vue, created Veet. And got it. So he uh, definitely <laughs> knows how to, that man definitely knows how to manage a community and make them productive together. So I would definitely not bet against Veet over. Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> I, but like that. Nothing superficial, but I, I that, get what you're, I get your general yeah. point. Um, <laughs> like I said, it was a tangent, right? But yeah. so I have heard lots of good things about it. Like it's really fast, et cetera. And like, but one of the other things that I remember like thinking about when I was doing this like 50 line of JavaScript thing was like, like hot module reloading is like a big selling point in like modern JavaScript bundlers. And that's almost as good as just not having a bundler. Like you, there's no, what do you mean? Like hot module? Like I, I just hit save and then that's it. And the browser takes care of everything. I, I guess you could argue it's better if you've got the little like automatic snippet that like reloads the browser, but I've always had mixed feelings about that. So when I was building this, this small thing, one of the things that sort of came to mind is like, I really like not having NPM anywhere in my like project, like just no NPM, like, like aside from like dependencies in general, like NPM in particular, there's like a lot of security problems. Like when you install something by default, it gets to run arbitrary code on your machines, which means, and, and it's also like the biggest repository, which means it's like the most likely that someone's going to try and exploit that. Um, there's just a lot of like, and, and you can, you can configure something by default to make it so that it doesn't do that anymore, unless you explicitly authorize when you're installing, like to, to give a script permission to run arbitrary code on your machine. But a lot of popular packages don't work if you have that enabled, as I've discovered over the years. So I don't know, there was there was definitely something what you're saying resonates with me in terms of like, I'm just going to do stuff myself. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna like bring in a bunch of dependencies. I'm just gonna write simple, obvious stuff. Having said that, I have also definitely had the experience of even when I was like writing my own thing with no dependencies, and I liked what was going on in the small I've definitely had code bases like get out of control where like after a while, I just, even though I was kind of taking that approach, like make small modules, try to keep like, think a lot about the architecture of them. And in some cases, even like re-architecting them from scratch and then running into different problems later on. Maybe that's something where like over time I would just get better as a programmer and like, wouldn't need like, you know, an Elm or a TypeScript or something like that, like to, to help me out with, I don't know, keeping the code base manageable, but and I also would say that it, it depends on the type of project in the sense that like when I've had a lot of different pages and each page has like maybe a couple of different things going on versus if I have like, like Dreamwriter is one that comes to mind, which is this like single page. And when I say single page app, I mean like single route app. It's just like, <laughs> there's, it's all one giant editor for like writing novels in. And there was just a ton of stuff going on on that one page because it was really kind of like a native desktop app just like in the browser. Like like a, a Google Docs would be like another, you know, thing like that. And we've had a couple of things like that at work where just 
even within a single page, there's just so much going on. There's just tens of thousands of lines of code of like application logic, not even dependencies. And for those cases, I definitely have appreciated like having something like bigger helping me out, whether that's uh, my favorite, obviously is Elm, but even like I I think a a React or something might've helped me out. Well, I... If, gosh, if you want to open up the can of worms, <laughs> let's do it. Right to it. <laughs> let's open oh it up. Gosh. So uh, we had another debate in the company around, uh, there is a, a large dashboard with, or there is a part of the site where, you know, you have to, there's a lot of settings and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. at a debate, it's like, they started like one of the engineers, love him, but he uh, just <laughs> introduced a framework uh, because he said, well, there's there's all these forms on the page and there's too much state and we need a tool to manage state and reactivity across all these different forms and stuff like that. And I said, I just like, like I got a little bit upset, walked away. And then, you know, I tried to like calmly say like, I think at some point I just let the cat out of the bag and just was like, why in the hell is this a single page application? Why? <laughs> Why? Ah, Why is this a single amp- a page application? None of this should be complicated. This is just like, think about it. Like there's a couple different settings that you have to set across the app and across your profile and about, you know, whatever. It's like, none of this is hard. It's all easy. Like just, Oh, I see. Here's so a, like a bunch of, Here's a <laughs> you have a bunch of tabs and, or something. Yeah, yeah. There's there's tabs and and they were talking about you know they were like you know hiding and showing forms and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm like, it, it's just you know, again, um, you know, I, I can't be everywhere like you know yeah, managing yeah. everybody's lines of code, but but it's just like there is no reason for this to be a single page app. Let's break it up. And and now it's like, I mean, our site is so fast that it's like you can't even tell. That you're clicking another page it just like instantly loads like if you go to anything on front of masters it just loads really fast and that we have more ideas of how to make things even faster than they are today you always do but in general it's just a very very fast site it's like okay let's just make these server rendered forms and then uh the problem is is over right like right so in this particular case you know the problem you know i just I get really frustrated again same thing with choosing a framework over, you know, just trying to write it, you know, vanilla JavaScript is like, why does this all of a sudden have to be a single page application? Why can't we break this problem down, server end of the pages, problem goes away. And now they're like, every time we're adding something new, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that this is, you know, this is this new architecture. Like it's so fast to work in. It's like, they just put up <laughs> this whole new, new onboarding experience and new, like, you know, just with breaking things into like this, right, is just by con- not creating a problem in the first place. Exactly. This is the context <laughs> that the user is, is this is the context, right? The user needs this amount of data for this thing. And it's just one page. And you're, you're basically taking a giant problem and you're splitting it up into a small problem. And then you're putting that small problem on the page. And instead of like, Okay, well, you know, because it was it was harder for the server team too. It wasn't just harder on the front end to like all of a sudden there's a framework and now you're dipping between all these different forms and everything has to, you know, loading spinners and optimistic UI and yada 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 yada. Right? It's just <laughs> like, no, you have a small problem 
you solve it, you run, serve a run to the page, the user submits the form, the backend does the thing and then whatever. And so it's now it's simpler for the backend team because they don't have to hydrate, they don't have to pull a bunch of data and then, you know, like all of a sudden respond with JSON and over here, success or fail. And then they have to handle this. And if there's an error, then all this stuff, it's like, no, uh, server under the dang form and then let the server team do what they do best, which is write incredibly fast code that it's going to be way faster than anything you write. So how about don't write anything on the front end, <laughs> leave it to the back end team that writes vanilla Go, the most beautiful vanilla Go you've ever seen, you know? Just leave it to them because they're going to do better than you. So, so stop it, right? Just stop it. Like, my goodness. <laughs> like, I think my problem is UI developers suddenly just keep taking more and more challenges into their own hands and stop, like, you know, and they just make things harder on the backend team because suddenly it needs to be an SPA and it has to, like I mentioned, all of those things. It's like, now we have to figure out where we need the right data. And, and that's where, you know, GraphQL is now you're trying to push all of that to the client. Now the client makes the decisions what data it needs because the server, it's basically the server team being like, well, I don't know. Here's, here's GraphQL. It's like, you know, I, and, you know, obviously like, this is all my personal opinions, people. This isn't right. one of my masters as a whole. But in general, yeah. my philosophy is like, our backend team is freaking awesome. Let's let them do their thing. And they're much happier with us to let them do their thing. I think that's an extremely underrated like architectural choice is like be multi-page on purpose because there's a bunch of simplifications that that brings to your overall architecture. Like theoretically, you could make the case that single page app is simpler because if you have all 100% of the rendering logic in the front end and then the back end is just an API for that, then look, you have like each code base is responsible for its own thing and that's going to be simpler. However, that also means that you no longer get to bank on the browser as a sort of like as a source of removing a whole bunch of state complexity. Like the the fact that like like pages if you're going to organize things in a way that like feel like pages anyway, like there's definitely benefits from letting the browser deal with all of the stuff having to do with a, an actual page, as opposed to, for example, doing a bunch of work in the client to like emulate that and try to make it feel as if it's the stuff that the browser can already do for you. Like, you know, what should the history do? You, now you have to like manually, you know, increment, like push things onto the history stack when you click so that the back button still works the way it normally would on a multi-page app. And like now instead of, like you said, you know, I like the way that you said server is rendering JSON. The server is rendering no matter what. Like the question is, is it rendering HTML or JSON? And yeah, you can say like, I don't want to have my server like have to know about my front end like HTML structure. That's a reasonable argument, but again, there's downsides. But like the fact is, like from a performance perspective, the server's gonna render a big string and send it to the client. It's either gonna be a big JSON string or it's gonna be a big HTML string. But in terms of like bytes being sent over the network, it's gonna be a bunch of it's gonna be a big string. Like either way. That's just, you know, and, and you can say maybe the JSON string is smaller than the HTML. That's definitely possible. But I remember back in the day, like in like 2006, 2007, like that was what server rendering on the fly usually was was like with with ajax as we called it it was like you want to re-render part of the page you would just ask the server in javascript you'd be like hey i need the new html for like this chunk of the page that like 
I need to re-render without destroying the rest of the page's state or whatever. And the server would send you HTML and you would inject it in there. And that's like fallen out of favor. But I wonder how much of these things have fallen out of the favor because someone sat down and said, you know what? I've thought really long and hard about the trade-offs and I'm going to enumerate the trade-offs on both sides, (laughs) right? Absolutely, they did not. It's just default is the zero thought situation, which is, you know, this is just how things are done, you know, these days. And this is the quote unquote modern way. And the, the reality is you can still apply all of those amazing, you know, patterns of, like you mentioned, not having state in the DOM and all these kinds of things. You can still apply that, you know, you can decide where you want a client side render or service side render. Like, you know, we do that, you know, our player our video player has a lot of functionality built in, but ultimately like each page, if you hit refresh, you know, the, the URL does update, like you're talking about, it is kind of a single page application, but at the end of the day, very small bits are client rendered, not, you know, the whatever it, it's just, it's very, very small, like templates for the components for the sidebar and whatever. But at the end of the day, you have to really think about, that URL, like everything stems from the URL. You're only doing that where it's necessary, right? Like there's one part of the site where that's unavoidable. So you're doing it in that one part, but you're not doing it by default, just as a matter of course. Exactly. Throughout the frontendmasters.com, you know, all the, you know, I call it the marketing website or everything that has to load really fast is like, what's faster than no framework? (laughs) Right? Like (laughs) you render a Go template and it's going to be faster than whatever framework du jour. You know, it's the marketing website. There's no reason marketing websites need all of that crap by default. There's just no reason for it. It's just render the the page. Yeah, <laughs> give, yeah absolutely. Give the, give the user the data. It's like I was out in another state, Wisconsin, and my internet was really, really poor in a specific area. And it was like, it's just, yeah, nothing works. Nothing works these days. Nothing yeah. works in, in a low bandwidth environment. And it's like, all I'm looking to do is look up, a, you know, it's like Google works, but like nothing yeah. else works. You know what I mean? Because and, Google, and only Google.com works, by the way. Other other Google properties, good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's true yeah. because they make mo- they still make all their money on search, right? So that reminds me of a cool, like, I don't know, phrase. Like there's a common phrase, like, that's advising people who are doing backend development to sort of like go back to basics, like realize like don't prematurely optimize for scale, which is like, you're not Google. Like not every application is Google, right? Like you can get away with something much, much simpler than what Google does. And maybe we need something like that on the front end. Like you are not Google Docs. Like you're not building a WYSIWYG rich text, you know, word processor on a single page in the browser. Probably. I mean, maybe you are like, I mean, I, I have literally done something uh, almost that, but like most applications are primarily static texts. And then there's a little bit of interactivity added on top of that. And if that's what you're doing, you probably don't need all that infrastructure and it's probably a net negative. But I wanted to address one thing you were talking about with small modules getting complex, right? Some complexity, like as you kind of scale this approach and, uh, you know, I would argue that you were probably when you did that, you were probably a less senior engineer. You had seen less architecture patterns. True, but I think in this case, it was more just that like it, it wasn't that I could get away with 
it was that a lot of these things needed to interact in really complicated ways. Like whenever you would like press a character in the like rich text editor, a whole bunch of different things like across the screen would like the word count would need to update. And like, if you're editing inside a chapter, like the chapter heading might need to update. And then there was like persistence because it was automatically like saving to Dropbox, um, like as you were typing the number of like different things that would need to potentially, Oh yeah. And then also as you were navigating around, it would need to like, update the like bold button, like figure out, are we inside bold text or not? Like if so, that that needs to update. It was the interactions between all the different things that like sort of compounded and got to a point where like things just started, like I I couldn't maintain it anymore successfully. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, sometimes when that happens, I'd argue, you know, that you need to just take, sit back and take a little bit higher level view of the problem domain and then come up with an architecture that supports it, right? Because like we all reach these points in projects where we're assembling, you know, small modules and we've written this tiny little bit of code here and tiny little bit of code here and we assemble it together and it just, you know, it behaves a little bit unexpectedly. And it's because you wrote those for a specific use case and now your use case has changed. It's evolved. Now you have a, your, your use case is now a bit more, you know, complicated. And so you have to think about, you know, a bit new architecture. And yeah, I think if that architecture involves a tool, like in the case of, you know, I'm mostly a fan of TypeScript. If TypeScript solves it with, you know, a couple architecture patterns on top of it, that's probably the next stage. And then beyond that, maybe you really do need, okay, well, we need uh, our very specific use case needs DOM diffing, or, you know, I could, you know, pull in fast DOM for, you know, these parts or whatever, right? Like, I think at that point, you know, you're making the right trade-offs by choosing whatever tool at that point. I just think that so early on in the life cycle, we think we need these tools and then we paint ourselves into a corner and then, you know, we try to reach for these escape hatches and or we get into dependency hell and et cetera. I think reaching for it like too early and and like, yeah, maybe that's like the real lesson here is like moving your threshold for when you think you need these things like much further out than where it. Yeah, that's all. That's literally that my entire (laughs) argument, I guess, with kind of the industry. And if I created a, a course, you know, I'm not saying that tools don't have their place. It's just that we are. I don't think that we're making the right trade offs as an industry at all. We're not thinking enough about these trade offs. And I think that's the goal of, you know, I think front end masters in general is to take somebody from a junior engineer and bring them up to a senior engineer or like, you know, lead perspective by giving them those like deep fundamentals so they can kind of think through and like make these trade-offs as like, okay, taking this part of the code and making it too functional and making it too, you know, generic and too whatever is, is just, it's making it a bit more, you know, difficult to maintain you know, or difficult to work with the team because they don't understand the code I'm writing because it's all in monads <laughs> and different, you know what I mean? It's like, even if you enjoy it, like that's not, that's not the right trade-offs in that moment, you know, right out of the gate, right? To just load up, you know, all this mental overhead with that type of architecture. So I think, you know, if you understand a lot of different tools, libraries, languages, 
browser APIs, and, and really like if you're doing low-level programming, you know, understanding the environment you're working in, it applies to whatever environment you're working from. You you need to understand the language that you're working in really, really well, and then layer underneath it, which in the case of web development is the browser APIs. But you know, if you're doing some low-level programming, you need to to really understand the hardware that you're running it on and all that kind of stuff. So it's just like you need to go one layer deeper. And if you want to go two layers deeper and you want to understand how Chromium works, like at that point, eventually you get to Inception and and where people are like, well, why don't you smelt the ore yourself to make your own computer? It's like, <laughs> you know, people, you know, but I would say like one layer underneath where you're working is where you really need to spend some time. And then, yeah, my, those are my, I guess, two pitches, right? Yeah. Learn the language. Don't reach for tools willy-nilly like yeah, it's like it's like right. back to basics right <laughs> yeah absolutely fundamentals like i'm all about it and i and i'm so excited about them even today and and i think you know especially today like that's that's kind of the message that i'm i guess that's why i'm here on this podcast and and uh and potentially you know going to start speaking and teaching more Awesome. Well, hey, I, I look forward to that because, yeah, I mean, I think this is a really underrated approach and uh, I'm glad that you're like promoting it while also giving people a path to use, to like learn and use whatever they uh, they need, you know, for their, their careers. And I'm proving it works. Like it scales. <laughs> it's not just, you know, a toy. It's not just for toy projects. Like you can legitimately build large applica- ambitious applications you know, and maybe you do need TypeScript or maybe you do need some of these other tools and that's fine. But like, at least you thought about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Mark, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking about all this stuff. Thanks for having me. 